Talk Radio Show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host here for the next hour on the Talent Talk Radio Show. We have a great lineup here for you today. We have a single guest coming in for the whole hour, and we have had lots of great guests this year, and we have even more planned out the rest of the year, and we hope you plan to join us. The way the show works is this. We really feature a wide range of guests who care about talent, management, leadership development, company culture, and really kind of help us kind of dissect this word talent. And it really has two different meanings in the business world. First is it relates to success and how really talented people achieve success. And the second is how it relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their companies. And undoubtedly, these two things kind of come together and kind of mash up together all the time. We have really talented people in HR, and we have really have HR people helping talented people. So this show really looks to explore those two areas as best we can, along with how a talented individual can really impact a company's culture. So my guests typically include CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, coaches, authors, and really anyone who has something important to say around this topic. And typically happens is I'm at a networking event and I have the privilege of meeting one of these great leaders and I've kind of created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue, learn some practical advice on how to cultivate talent, develop leaders and manage culture and hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. I want to thank those of you who are tuning in live every Tuesday. Don't forget you can tweet your questions uh, to at peopleg 2 and use the hashtag Talent Talk. My producer Mike can feed me the best questions and we'll try to work them into the show as time allows. Also, don't forget, you can listen to the podcast. Go onto your phone or your Android or iPhone, whatever it may be, and look up uh, Talent Talk in that uh, podcast section, and you can subscribe to the feed and join the other 135, 140,000 subscribers we have that uh, have that show delivered to them each week right there on their phone. And we thank those of you tuning in to listen that way. So let's go ahead and get to my guest. We have her on here for the, the full show. Uh, Lynn Schmidt, she's a, a global talent management leader. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing in the area of uh, leadership development. Sure. I have um, over 20 years' experience as a global talent management executive in Fortune 500 corporations. I've got an experience in most talent management functions, so for example, strategic workforce planning, talent acquisition, performance management, learning and development, leadership development, succession management, employee engagement, diversity, mentoring, and coaching. Um, I've been fortunate to be able to work at um, industries across uh, the globe and various industries as well. Uh, Currently, I'm involved in executive coaching, and I'm also doing some research on a new book that I'm writing focused on the topic of resiliency. Uh, The other thing I'm doing is really focusing on my own resiliency skills and how to build those. Uh, So I'm looking at taking a sabbatical, really focusing on developing my skills as a writer, spending some time in Europe, going to Oxford University and take a writing seminar. I really have a desire in the future to write a fiction novel as well. I've written several nonfiction books, but there's this. Uh, fiction novel calling to me out there. 
Well, when you were listing all those things that you've done and that you're doing now, I was going to say you need a vacation. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear you've got a maybe sabbatical planned in there. That may be a, something good for you. You know, you kind of began here kind of working in talent management. You've mentioned working for some big companies. I mean, Raytheon and Countrywide, uh, Nextel, to some of them there. And all these positions were centered on organizational development and leadership, from what I can tell. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've taken from each of those opportunities and how you've kind of collectively helped build your own foundation as a talent management executive? Yeah, absolutely. I've been fortunate to really gain a breadth of experience, breadth and depth across all those talent management functions I've mentioned through my positions, as well as being able to learn about various cultures and a variety of industries and geographic locations. At Nextel, one thing I really took away was the importance of integrating and aligning talent management initiatives. Integrating the functions, whether they are one reporting relationship more formal or simply focused on common business goals more informal. An example of that is taking the individual contributor and leadership competencies and not just incorporating them into learning and development, but integrating them into talent acquisition, behavioral interviewing, succession management, performance management, and other talent management initiatives so that you have effective employee selection and development. Otherwise, those functions operate independently and may you may not get the biggest return you can if, unless they're really working together. At Countrywide, I got very involved in the global aspects of implementing talent management initiatives. This really emphasized the importance of involving your internal partners around the world in the development of talent management initiatives. So they're applicable so that they can be tweaked, adapted, you know, to really fit those different cultures. One example there is a leadership development program that we created and rolled out across the company, and we needed to involve our partners in our call centers in India in the design, development, and rollout because there were certain aspects, especially some of the legal and compliance aspects that were just very different. At Raytheon, you know, you've got a very large organization there, and it's important to have everyone rowing in the same direction. The importance of core competencies that cut across the company, uh, leadership development programs that are applied across the divisions so you can identify those competencies and, and develop people in those in similar ways across the organization. I think you can certainly tweak by division, make some differences, but there are core skills and messages that need to be common across an enterprise, especially if you're focused on succession management, job rotations, to build capability. So I think the key message for me from the organizations I've worked in, the different industries, is that the foundational talent management functions, talent acquisition, performance management, learning and development, succession management, are critical to any business, but it's important to be flexible and adapt as necessary for an industry or geographic location. And it's my belief that strong leadership is so important to the success of any business. It's important to have a focus on developing those leaders. Their reach is just so big. Well, and it seems like you have a real passion around this kind of core competency of really helping develop and helping leaders develop that talent around them. So what kind of drives you to do that? Where does that come from? Yeah, I'm really all about um, developing myself and others. So I think it's a combination of I just have this huge development focus. I've been in school probably all my life. I achieved my Ph.D. in 2009, and so, you know, like I said, in school for a long time, developing myself, and that translates to I really believe how important it is to develop others. And because 
the individual or the people in the business do really make the business successful. One of my other areas of expertise is analytics and really being able to show the impact of talent and management initiatives to the bottom line. And so I know through studies I've personally done and studies that friends and others have done, you know, that development does drive and increase revenue, that if you've got people with the right skill set and leaders operating in the right way, using the right competencies, you can really drive success in the business. Yeah, and those are some really important things. It's fantastic that you're kind of so passionate about that. Sometimes it's, it can be topics that people can kind of shy away from or really don't don't go deep enough into to really be competent at it, to really have an impact in an organization because it, it, it's very complex, along with you know all the big company politics and all the other things that kind of can come into there and trying to, to, to make you know good things happen within an organization. What are some of the biggest challenges that you kind of find yourself running into you know, in this area of talent management, you know, and maybe after you get to talk about that, can I ask you about what some of the you know biggest rewards are? But what are some of the kind of common challenges that you see? Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, organizations are large, they're complex, which can really make it be uh, difficult to implement talent management initiatives successfully. And so I think that ties into some of the biggest challenges. Uh, one I've found frequently is the perspective of business leaders. The, they question, and it's a fair question to ask, um, how is this initiative, this HR, if you will, initiative, really going to help me? You know, Or is it just another HR initiative? And so I think it's really upon HR talent management initiatives to be able to speak the language of the business, to be able to translate or effectively communicate how that initiative, that talent man- management initiative, will benefit the business. You know, because the, the clients, the internal clients, the business people, they're there to drive revenues regardless of what their job is. You know, even for nonprofits, I was at a, just recently at a nonprofit, and, you know, anyone who says that nonprofits aren't about making money, um, I would disagree because they at least have to bring in enough revenue to overset their operating expenses. And so I think that's really key for HR to be able to communicate that and also be able to show the value. Once the initiative's taken place, how did it benefit the business and really be able to talk to business a business language. And I think that's how, personally, how HR has earned um, sometimes a bad rap by being more focused on the initiative itself versus really demonstrating the benefit um, to the business and being able to speak the business language. I think another challenge that I've encountered is senior leadership making the time to spend on talent management initiatives that will pay off big in the long run. And I think that might be because maybe it hasn't been communicated correctly or they aren't understanding the value. But I also think there's this piece about being interested more in short-term success versus the long-term gain. And an example I can use to demonstrate that is succession management. In order to make short-term gains in a business, um, leaders won't invest the time in identifying successors and building bench strength. You know, we have to make this quarterly results. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to get there developing people. We're taking them off the job. We're taking them away from, you know, really what's important to us. But if they have that mindset, that short-term mindset, what happens is in the long run, they and the company pay for it by a loss in productivity. Maybe there's going to be a large number of retirees or maybe the good talent starts leaving and they don't have strong bench to replace them. So then they spend a lot of money on recruiting initiatives. So I think it's, it's, it's having um, not just a short-term mindset, but a long-term as well, and maybe you know having a balance there. I'd say those are a couple of the key challenges that I've encountered. And what are some of the the greater rewards in, in being able to kind of push those things through despite the challenges? 
Yeah, I think the reward for me, and I'm really, I'm just a big believer that it is a benefit to both individuals and the business by focusing on the development of employees at all levels. And so it's extremely rewarding for me, one, to be able to see that on a larger scale. So when you implement initiatives and you can really see the results and you can you can report on those, you can communicate those to the business, I think that's very rewarding because that then you're seeing on a very large scale the impact that you've had. Another reward for me is then at the individual level. I've coached numerous individuals on their own development plans and that is incredibly rewarding because that's you see immediate application, you see immediate change in behaviors and and people are usually very very thankful, very glad to see that happen, and so that's really an immediate reward. Sometimes the organizational initiatives, when they're large, that takes longer time to see, longer time to implement, longer time to see the impact. The individual changes and coaching, you can see pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's almost that instant gratification or the kind of really impactful change you can see right away when you're coaching someone or just helping them out or whatever that role may be, as opposed to something more longer and that you have more direct control over, let's say, if it's your own initiative internally, because it's always... When you do things internally, it's, well, you start something, you finish something, and you start something new. It almost seems never-ending, but when you're coaching, you kind of get that great feedback right away, and you see that, you know, what you talked about with that person, it has such a great impact... Or if it didn't, you can kind of figure out, because you're outside of it, right? You're, you're not dealing with all the other challenges they are to be able to make that change quickly and then and move forward. I mean, I, that, that's part of that, like, kind of picking up on what you're saying and being able to get kind of those great rewards in coaching somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see the impact of your coaching week to week, I mean, or, or every two weeks, whatever the meeting schedule is. You know, the individual goes back, they apply something, they learn from it, they see a difference, and you talk about it the next week. So it's very, very immediate. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, I know you mentioned uh, this desire to write a fiction book, but I know you've also written... Um, uh, or written one book at least, and uh, it's in, Integrated uh, Talent Management Scorecards, and you talked about having another one in development. So maybe you could share a little bit about that book and um, you know how that would work and, and why people might want to take a look at that book and in, in, in kind of helping deal with some of the challenges in their, or, their own organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the book came about, in, it's Integrated Talent Management Scorecards, and it's got 18 case studies from well-known organizations across the world that really they're demonstrating how they've designed, developed, and implemented key talent management initiatives. And it came about because when I started out in this field, I really started first in the learning and development side, and so I did a lot of work and have a couple books about training scorecards, about leadership scorecards. But as I moved more into talent management as a whole and all of those functions, I really saw how that scorecard methodology applies across the board for anything where you're trying to improve performance. And so the book itself um, really came about because of my strong belief that integrating the various talent management functions is necessary to achieve business success. Then in a lot of HR organizations where those different functions operate so independently, talent acquisition, performance management, L&D, all of those, and what happens is then they're working on various goals differently. Yeah, and that's and that kind of gets back into an idea of leadership and company culture, uh, which I know we're going to get to here, but you know if if whether those things are going to kind of be running on their own, 
you know, on their own speed in their own places in the organization. They're not really kind of tied to something bigger and, and more important than, than the initiative itself. I, I know uh, we'll probably have time here for one more question before we get to our first commercial break, and that is, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies that have that some kind of a scorecard system when evaluating talent, performance, and workforce planning, but what do you feel is the most important for companies to understand about the system before they decide to actually integrate it into the regular talent evaluation process? Yeah, well, the key for the book, um, the Integrated Talent Management Scorecard book, is that we created, um, myself and my co-author, Tony DeTunct, created three levels of scorecards. The first is the organizational macro scorecard, and that's looking at all of the functions within talent management rolling up either formally or informally, having consistent measures that they're all held accountable for. The second is the functional scorecard. So that's been each of those functions, such as talent acquisition, having their own scorecard that they're accountable for. And then there's the initiative scorecard, and that's where each initiative that the function is focused on, maybe talent acquisition is focused on college recruiting, maybe learning and development is focused on sales training, each of them having a specific micro scorecard that will report on the outcome of that initiative. And so I think that that is a key thing for organizations to keep in mind as they look at their scorecarding process, is that the system requires alignment. Um, it requires dedication and it requires knowledge of analytics, alignment with the business goals, as well as having the HR functions aligned and focused on similar goals. The dedication comes from really seeing the evaluation plan and scorecard through and sticking with it, changing it up so frequently that um, it's difficult to really report on anything. Uh, and then the third piece is knowledge of analytics is key. I saw a study recently that indicated that knowledge of analytics was a skill that was lacking in a lot of human resource professionals because they're joining human resource for a lot of different reasons, a lot of them having more to do with managing some of the people aspects of the business. And so I think that's a key skill that HR really needs to focus on building in their, po- in their employee population to really um, make scorecards successful. I think the other thing, the second point that I think is really critical around scorecards is that organizations and people get hung up on data and statistical perfection. And so what I always emphasize to people is the business world is not an academic controlled study. The business world, as we know, changes quite frequently. And so you've got to create your measures, the way you're going to evaluate, the way you're going to collect data to have that flexibility and not stop or not even start collecting data and creating scorecards because you don't feel you can get the data you need in a way you need it. Um, the other thing I tell people is executives make decisions all the time on limited data, and so we shouldn't hold ourselves so uh, accountable or to that perfection level where we think we have to have it exact. Talk to your finance people. Talk to your executives. How do they want it reported? What's the best way for the business? And then take an initiative and get started. I think sometimes this fear holds people back, and I think it's just take something on, take one initiative on, get started on measuring, evaluating it, and reporting. And I think folks will find out that you know the business will really appreciate that. Well, we're having a great conversation here with Lynn Schmidt. We're going to take our first commercial break, and we'll pick up where we left off after this quick commercial break. Welcome back. We're here with uh, Lynn Schmidt, and we're just going to pick up where we left off here. And I know we were talking about uh, the scorecard systems and evaluating talent, and I think we started to kind of naturally fall into this, what would be my next question, of where do people tend to kind of get hung up? And 
you, you started to talk about this idea of perfection and maybe have trying to have all the information and all the you know all the data there before they make an actual decision which we know can really be a challenge for people. That's usually what gets you promoted is being able to make decent decisions without all the information instead of getting stuck and asking everyone else to do it for you. But are there other areas where you find people typically kind of get hung up in this process? Yeah, I think well, I think that that's one. And then the other one is just uh, uh, you know maybe somewhat of a fear, or it's not a natural skill or capability to really learn how to how to do the analytics in and of itself. The how do you? I, there's a process I like called objective mapping that you use during the needs assessment to align the business objectives with the performance objectives and the learning objectives. Um, and then in the back end, you can go back then and measure and evaluate much easier. So there's a it's 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 like anything else, it's a skill that you've got to learn um, and take time to focus on to learn the tools and techniques. And I think, um, you know, I think making the development of those skills maybe easier or maybe a focus for folks, I think, would be is important. And I know you have a new project in helping women leaders and what it takes really for them to thrive when faced with, you know, kind of difficult working challenges. Can you talk a little bit about your, your findings and that research and that topic? Yeah, absolutely. This project started probably around 2005 when my dissertation was focused on female executives' perceptions of the factors that contributed to their career derailment. So I interviewed 23 female executives to get their perspectives on what happened, career derailment being defined as someone who is perceived with the ability to be successful in a role, and then they were in it, and for whatever reason, the success didn't happen, so they may have been asked to leave or demoted or forced out in some way. And then my co-author on this book, Kevin Norse, his dissertation work was on resiliency, and he interviewed leaders who went through Hurricane Katrina to look at how they thrived and grew from such a horrific experience and maintained their resiliency. And so what happened is we both finished our work there and our research there, and a few years ago we, we know each other a long time, we got together and said, well, let's look at combining those two topics. We're both coaches, you know, we're coaches as well, and let's take a look at, let's take resiliency to the workplace. Resiliency is a term that's often used in association with large-scale events like Hurricane Katrina or 9-11, and how are people resilient through that, or how is the world resilient through those types of scenarios. Resiliency is also used to really look at very traumatic traumatic experiences that people may have in their lives. And so what we wanted to do, what we're doing, is we're taking the term resiliency, we're applying it to the workplace, specifically women, because there are some different, what research shows is there are some different coping capabilities, and women approach negative experiences a little bit differently. And so we're really wanting our research, through our research, is to provide them more of a problem-solving approach um, to being resilient at work. And the other key there around the resiliency um, topic is that, you know, derailment or these career setback situations are really a system issue. Um, Many organizations focus on a person's leadership style or competencies, whether it's a man or woman, because they feel those are things that can be addressed or changed. You know, but there's a lot of other contributing factors, and they're different for women based upon gender. You know, there's things like how the organization is structured, policies and practices um, that may be different based on gender. There's 
there's research around, you know, competent women and how they're perceived in the workplace. If a woman's more direct driving, how that's perceived versus if it's a man. There are things also around societally and gender bias there. So that's really a lot of the research that's gone into this. And what we did recently in the last couple of years is we interviewed coaches who had coached women through these type of derailment career setback situations and the women thrived. So we're defining resiliency as not just surviving, but thriving and growing, learning from the experience. And so we interviewed those coaches, and we came up with six, we found six strategies, key strategies that women can apply either proactively before any type of situation like this happens or reactively um, if they get caught up in it. And so, and those six strategies really look at things like making sure you have a strong support network. Make sure that you're really focused on your purpose. Do you know your values? Are you using your strengths? Are you accepting feedback and making changes based upon it? What are your coping strategies? How do you transform something negative like this into a positive? And really looking at things like how are you taking care of your health? What's your work-life balance? And so focusing on those strategies is where we're at right now, beginning to write the book, um, focusing in on those, and providing really specific practical action plans that women can apply as well. For, for those six, do you feel like there are, are they all equal or are there ones that, you know, you got to have at least this one to start and then you can learn the others? I mean, is there some some sort of variance there between them? Yeah, so what, what we've learned is that women may come, will probably come into the scenario either proactively or reactively having strengths already in some of them. Some women are excellent at network and building that support structure, some not so much. And so what we're saying is those six are not linear and they're not sequential and you don't necessarily maybe even have to have them all, but you would have stronger resilience. What, what we would recommend is you look at the six and, and we'll have an assessment where you can, you can evaluate yourself and say, well, I'm already strong in this. I really should spend more time in this other one and really look at which of the six do you need to focus in or hone in on um, to really have the be as resilient as possible. And and some of this uh, research you talked about kind of coming from interviewing of the coaches and getting their perspectives on, on some of these situations. Are, are there competencies that you see that really make for a successful coaching experience as well? Yeah, and that's part of our research as well that we're doing. So it's twofold because we feel the book can be used by women to self-coach. In fact, we just had our reading team, um, our team of readers out there, read our first couple chapters, and, and they came back and said, you know, I can apply these. I'm applying these strategies, these tactics, these actions tomorrow. And so it was really great because these weren't coaches. Well, some were coaches, but the people that said this, they weren't coaches. They were women in the workplace who weren't necessarily familiar with the actions, and they could apply them immediately. The second audience is coaches, and they could take the book, and they could use it to work with women as well to help them apply the strategies. In fact, one of the coaches who was who just read our chapters for us, she said she went the next day and applied some of the actions with someone she was coaching, so immediate application. But what we did find in researching what coaches need to do to really help women thrive is we found five key competencies that were key uh, to coaches being able to be successful. And we base those competencies, we use the International Coach Federation has 11 competencies that they say coaches need to be effective in. And so we use those 11 as a starting point, and five really surface that coaches need to be strong in to help a woman through this type of really adverse type of situation that's often very emotional. 
and to really help her, once again, not just survive, but thrive. And those key competencies were, you know, the coach needs to be able to establish trust and intimacy with the client. This is often an extremely negative situation. The woman might be ashamed, embarrassed, all these sorts of things going on. The coach really has to establish trust quickly to be able to move move the client forward. Coaching presence, that's how the coach is there, non-judgmental, accepting, helping the individual. Creating awareness, this is where the coach needs to help the individual really see what what took place in this scenario, what went wrong, what maybe did the individual own, what what were you know, what who else owned what in this scenario. The fourth one is designing actions, you know, to really help someone learn and grow. What are the best actions that someone needs to do? It gets back to the action planning and really what our book is all about with a lot of actions that people can apply to become more resilient. And then last one is managing progress and accountability. The coach really needs to help the individual or coach the individual to how do you look at how you're moving forward and is the individual holding themselves accountable to making progress. So those are really the key differences because of the other 11, you know, it's things like creating the contract, it's communication skills such as listening. Coaches often find those easier to do. The five I just mentioned can be a little bit more difficult, take more time and experience, and um, but those are critical to really help, help uh, coach a client through this type of scenario and help build their resilience. Well, when we're in this kind of role of leadership development, I always in some ways feel like you're, you're coaching your own team as opposed to being a you know a coach from the outside helping a particular individual. Do you feel like there are different you know things that you have to be good at that are different than, than what you just talked about? Because a lot of those feel like things that are very similar to what a, a good manager, a good leader would need to do with anybody in the organization. Or are there some differences there? You know, I, I would say that, and I definitely would agree that another audience for the book certainly would be any, we, we've mentioned HR professionals, coaches, and certainly could be a manager or leader who wants to be more effective at coaching their employees to be more resilient. And so those items I mentioned would be applicable across the board. I would, I would also agree that probably um, a little bit more difficult for just a leader as well to develop some of these skills with their employees. For example, if someone is managing your performance review, how you build that trust in a really difficult situation like this could be difficult. That's often why sometimes an external coach is brought in because the manager, one, the manager may be part of the problem, and or if not, it may be really difficult for the manager to kind of set aside what they have to do to, you know, with the employee to achieve the job and manage performance versus how do you coach someone to be successful and resilient. So, so yeah, absolutely, I think these are skills would be critical for a leader managing employees as well as others, coaches and other individuals. Yeah, because if you, if you don't have a basic, you know, establish some trust and communication with that person and you don't have some sort of, you know, objectives and uh, things that you require of them, you know, the kind of these, what are the boundaries here? What is expected? I mean, those are some pretty basic things. We say basic, but I mean, so many managers don't ever do those things or, or, or stumble <laughs> pretty hard. A lot of times with that communication and trust factor, and then, and, you know, they're not very effective in their roles, but it sounds like you know, those things could really be universal to anyone who's managing anyone or coaching anybody or just trying to help anyone through a difficult situation. Those are just fantastic kind of things to really think about. If you're going to take on that role, how can I be effective in helping that person through through this, this situation? And, boy, here are six things that if I make sure I do these things, I'm, I'm probably going to do a pretty good job. 
in, in helping them, uh, you know, assuming I'm the right person to be helping them to begin with. But at least I'm on the right track. So it sounds like you, you've really kind of t- taken some things that are maybe partly common sense, partly come out of your research and, and, and your experiences and put them into a nice kind of cohesive list that I think any manager or any leader can, can draw upon to try to be successful. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's good to hear as we're bouncing these ideas off of people that they're resonating and people see they're the practical and applicable. Yeah, I mean, you're not asking me to stand on one leg on a chair while they're talking to me. This is not something so bizarre or abstract that, you know, it's not understandable. These are, you know, really good uh, things that, you know, come from, again, those combination of things, common sense, your experience, your research, but they definitely resonate. You know, kind of moving into another area that the show we, we tend to, to hit a lot on and talk about is company culture, because you've, you've had the experience of being in, in many different large companies. Um, I'm sure the cultures in those were had some similarities, but were also very different. It's, it's oftentimes tied to the kind of the leadership development that's occurring. Good cultures that are really feeding that culture are feeding those leaders, and they're able to then kind of go down, down the line and, and really keep that going. And tends to start really from the top. I feel like it needs to be have ownership at the bottom, but you know, culture really starts at the top. So what are some of the, the challenges that leaders face when they're attempting to kind of maintain a particular corporate culture, you know, especially in these big organizations like those that you've you've worked in or worked worked for? Yeah, I think one of the key things, one of the key challenges is to get everyone on the same page. Um, about what is unique about the culture. And I think that gets more difficult the larger the organization gets. And that's really communication. Well, it's first identifying what's unique about the culture, which can be difficult. Right. Um, and what do we want to preserve and keep about that uniqueness as it changes as we grow over time. But also it's it's the communication of that and getting everyone on the same page and understanding it. And I think that's where, you know, talent management can really partner with the executive team in making that happen because those things that are unique, like if you look at a leadership competency model, many of the competencies are the same across industry, across geography, across organization. But there are going to be those few, you know, that are unique to that particular company. And so the challenge is, and this is where I think talent management can help, is really taking those competencies and integrating them across all of the functions. As I said, workforce planning, talent acquisition, performance management, learning and development succession, and making sure that those functions are highlighting those unique competencies, that, that as you're hiring, the talent acquisition person is looking for those. As you're developing, you're looking to build those. And as you're rewarding, you're rewarding those. So I think that's, you know, the challenges, identifying and then communicating them. And that's where I think talent management can play, you know, such an important role as far as integrating those. I think another key um, challenge around that is, is really willing to, you know, organizations, as I said, being willing to invest the time and focus on leadership development, on those competencies, on keeping the culture unique. Uh, once again, that short versus long-term focus, and I think that's that's key. I think another challenge for me is a lot of time organizations focus on what I like to call um, leadership development being more sheep-dipping, uh, meaning putting everyone through the same 
training program mm -hmm. um, to develop, and sometimes there are a few of those that are needed, but I'm a really big believer in individual development plans where each leader, employee, through performance management, through other talent management processes, has an individual development plan so that, yeah, there are some things that need to be common, but as a leader or employee, there are different ways that I can develop that that are going to be more meaningful for me than going to the same training program that, you know, 50,000 people are going to. And so I think that's key as well, that balance between, you know, training being the solution and everyone attending the same thing to develop culture versus an individual development plan that's more applicable to each person. Yeah, because, I mean, a small company, or if you're looking at it from a small division that has some autonomy, that might be easier to achieve to have those individualized things and in a you know medium-sized company more of a challenge but still possible with large company i can see that really being a big challenge to to not just be pushing people through these same large training things and like you said there are some that may be needed but i can see that being you know a very very big hurdle because you have to not only make sure they're getting that right specific training that they need but that also it's coming from someone who has the ability to do that training if they're getting it you know one-on-one -on -one from their manager or from a particular training that you've picked out do you think that's a part of helping companies keep their best talent though because i know that's kind of a, a big challenge it, you can have this great coach and this great company and you'll be getting these people in the door but for that long-term kind of you know growth that, that kind of curve to really kind of keep going you got to keep those great people on your teams uh, at some level to have that kind of internal knowledge stay with the company and really get some great traction yeah absolutely i mean that's you know keeping keeping the town is is important and i think one of the things that helps with that is is more of that individual development planning and the coaching that you just mentioned, you know, that leaders, the role leaders play in coaching and being able to coach employees on those plans. People are really wanting to, to see that they're going to have the ability to grow, whether it's, you know, lateral growth or, you know, more of a climbing wall growth, which I think careers really are now versus, you know, the, the ladder, the traditional career ladder. But I think that, you know, I think that is absolutely key to helping um, keep you know, keep talent as well. So you, you, once you have this talent, you're, you're keeping, what do you think that top companies do, regardless of their size? But what do the top companies do to get the most out of their employees? And, and when I say most, I don't mean working the most amount of hours or, you know, let's say producing the most amount of widgets in a particular time, but getting the most out of them from a, you know, strategic growth New ideas, innovation, like you know, like that kind of uh, thing. How do they get the most out of the, out of your staff? Yeah, you know, from my perspective, it, it sometimes this is just this is something that sometimes I think gets overcomplicated, and I really think it's personally fairly basic. Maybe it's harder to, harder to implement than to to state what those are. But in my mind, you know, employees are wanting first off, they're wanting to know what's happening. They're wanting to know the why of decisions. Um, to be included in decision-making, and to be provided with opportunities to grow and develop and then be rewarded. So I think in my mind it comes down to communication, involvement, um, development, and rewarding folks. And the rewarding isn't necessarily, doesn't, as we know, all the research shows, doesn't have to be monetary necessarily. There's a lot of ways that people, people just sometimes just want to be thanked for something, you know, that they did. So I think those things are 
They sound fairly basic, but I think the application and implementation of them are harder in organizations or organizations really struggle with that. You know, the, the communication one, I find organizations struggle with a lot, really keeping employees informed, um, knowing what's going on. I think sometimes because those things slow down, people are busy, it can get stopped maybe in the middle somewhere and not, you know, not make it to the, you know, the larger employee base and really being able to explain that. And then the involvement piece, just asking people, and that really gets to your comment about innovation, you know, involving people in being innovative, involving them in contributing their ideas. And then the developing and the rewarding. And I think the key there is, in my mind, those are, those have been kind of the basic foundational principles forever, and I don't necessarily know that they've changed or are any different. And even with, you know, a lot of the talk about the different generations, I'm not sure that those basics really change regardless. Yeah, and I think it's really easy to communicate good news. It's a lot harder to communicate mediocre news or even bad news, and that's really the ones that, you know, your staff really needs to know about. Why, you know, Mm -hmm. if something's not going right, well, why do we make this decision, and why did this happen, and so that they know what's happening and they can help come up with better solutions and problems. But I think so is that concern, well, if we communicate anything bad or mediocre, that that's going to cause people uneasiness. They're going to go find their job. They're going to, you know, I think it's our own insecurities in, at the top that kind of lead to some of that lack of communication. But it can be so important, especially if you do it correctly, to really helping the organization come together and, and you know, maybe think of things that no one ever thought about and involving them in those in those communications and processes. And I think you kind of brought up another point about that on the reward side of it, that we've had a lot of great guests talk about just the simple act of saying thank you to someone is usually about all they need. I mean, they just want someone to say thank you, someone to recognize them, even if it's one-on-one, even if it's in a small meeting with other people. People spend all this money on buying gift cards and recognition programs and spend all this money, and all people really want is just someone to say thank you and recognize them for for something they did. And managers can really have a huge impact on the people they're managing by remembering you know, that very, very simple thing every day if they can. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be complicated. Right. <laughs> well, uh, we're almost out of time here. I want to make sure we ask you one of our favorite questions, and that is, uh, is there a book that you're reading right now? I know you're in the midst of, uh, of writing and doing everything, but is there a, a book that we might check out that you're, you're finding interest in right now? Yeah, there's actually, I'll mention a couple, and you're absolutely right. I mean, my um, my reading right now is really focused around the resiliency topic because that's that's the book I'm writing, and, and I'm really trying to see what all else is out there and the approach. So I'm approaching that a couple of ways. One of the favorite books I just finished re- recently was Wild by Cheryl Strayed. And, you know, it's her memoir about the trips that she took. And that's really all about resiliency, how someone in difficult times and difficult situations really builds resiliency, what it takes, and then how you, you know, how they thrive, how people thrive in spite of the difficulties. And then there's another one I'm reading. It's called Mistakes I Made at Work, 25 Influential Women Reflect on What They Got Out of Getting It Wrong by Jessica Bacall. And... You know, that also ties to the resiliency work and the stories that we'll have in our book. You know, you make mistakes, you do things wrong, but what do you get out of it? How do you change? And a lot of times it means leaving the organization. It means maybe a different career. It can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people, and I think that's just important for for all of us to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. Well, really appreciate you being on the show. You've given us uh, some fantastic information, and I, I know I'm 
sure like others listening here today are really excited to take a look at that new book what you have coming out and of course check out the, the one that you did before how can people reach out or, or find out more about you if they're interested in what you're doing and the work that you're doing in the talent management and coaching and everything else you're involved in yeah absolutely i am on linkedin that's a great way to connect with me and reach out to me so people can just connect with me on linkedin and that provides my email and phone number as well I do have an author page as well as Amazon on Amazon.com if someone would like to learn more about the books that we talked about today and my uh, when we put out the run on resiliency, that'll be out there as well. And then my email address is lschmidt912 at hotmail.com. And so folks can just reach out me to me directly that way also. Well, fantastic. I, again, really appreciate you being on the show. We've, we've learned a, a lot here today, and uh, hopefully we have you come back at some point and maybe talk about the, the next book when you have it ready. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be able to share with all the other talent management professionals out there. Great. Well, uh, again, that's about the time we have. Uh, make sure you tune in live each week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Tuesday. Next week, my guests will include Warren Boone, the director of HR for Islands Restaurants. And uh, then we'll have Lisa Helio, vice president of Wickwire Food Industry Systems. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. 